Um, okay, we're, we're going to be talking about um, one. We're continuing our series. This is the fourth part in our series here. And we're looking at just this idea of oneness, right? There's so much types of one or unity within the Bible, one church, one baptism, right? There's one God, right? All of these sorts of things. And we're going to look at how we can actually become a little more one, how we can kind of come together and harmonize as the worship team did together to make things a little more beautiful. So we're going to begin this way. So if, if you're able to, would you please stand? We're going to read our passage to ponder. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read it together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And so we have the Shema here, right? Hero Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? And it's this beautiful statement of the unity of the faith, the fact that we can trust in God. God is one. He's a triune God, so three persons in, in one. And, you know, while we read this, we realize that for the Israelite community, this was such, a, such an important thing for them to hold on to. Right, the oneness. They said, impress this upon your children, right? Write it on the door frames, on your gates. Everywhere you can put that before you, let that be on your minds. So we want to keep that in mind as we go forward today. All right, so we're talking about pursuing oneness in a polarized world. Nice, easy topic for a Sunday, isn't it? All right? There is so much disunity in this world. It's so, so clear. I don't have to name them for you, although I will name a couple things. Um, you are living in it, right? You are having interactions with people. Some are good, some are challenging. You are um, bombarded with news segments and different types of issues that you realize um, make it a challenge for you. Am I coming across the same way here? Okay. thought I was coming across a little bit. Hello, hello. And if it isn't, then I will use the handheld mic. Al has it. Pastor Al... Right? Can you use this one? Okay. So you're having interactions. They're difficult. They are challenging. You are realizing you're watching the news. You are seeing these things. Some things in the news recently. On a nation and international level, right? We are seeing, of course... Wars, right? We're seeing the war in Ukraine. We are bombarded with that. Canada's role even involved in the war. We're seeing that all the time. Uh, we're seeing things like cyber warfare, right? Right now, you know, Canada is having some issues with India. And it's a long, complicated story. And I don't know enough about it to talk about it. But it's there. This is what's happening right now. But there were some Indian hackers who had taken claim for a cyber attack on the military website in Canada, right? These are things that are happening. Um, we are seeing, actually yesterday was the uh, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, right? That recognizes the abuses that the Inuit, First Nations, and Métis people have suffered. And this was at the hands of the state and the church as well. 
Okay. These are some of the international national conflicts that we're seeing. But closer to home, right? We all went through kind of the turmoil unrest of, you know, COVID season, right? BLM and all these things happening. We're seeing things online like, um, uh, what's it, MGTOW? You know MGTOW? No? Men going their own way. Have you heard this? This is like a large community that's rising up and they're kind of against what they would call radical feminism. The genders are butting heads and fighting each other. Um, We see it on age demographics, right? Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, baby boomers, right? There's some issues. And of course, politically, just liberals and conservatives. So it's all over the place. But it's, it's closer home though too. Some of you are beefing right now with your neighbor over a fence or a hedge or any host of non-important things, right? At work, you're beefing. At home, you're beefing with your spouse, with your kids. Ooh. <laughs> it's close to home. We're going to touch on these things, but we're going to look at what Jesus is telling us. So, some of the causes for a polarized society, I'll just listen very quickly. They're there on the screen. Sin, right? Let's start sin nature makes it difficult for us to relate to one another. Now we have selfishness and all kinds of issues that make it very tough. Some of the causes, me and you and us and them, right? Individually and collectively. Another cause, the Satan. Satan is actually trying to disrupt us. So we're going to look at something that was coming in. This is in Matthew 12. And just before we get there, you know, to set the scene, Jesus is going around. He's going from synagogue to synagogue. And he actually sees someone who, a man with what described as a, a shriveled hand. And Jesus heals him. Beautiful, beautiful story. All the amazing work that Jesus is doing. But then the Pharisees, who are there observing it, they ask this question. They say, is it lawful to heal someone on the Sabbath? I don't know how many bad questions you can ask, but that's one of them for sure, right? Jesus does this beautiful thing, and they have an issue with it because it healed on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, how much more valuable is a person than sheep? Because he says, if your sheep fell in the ditch, you'd pick the sheep out but you're upset that I healed this person on the Sabbath. So this is what's happening in the background. And we get here then a little bit later in Matthew 12, and we see kind of one of the root causes of our polarized world here. Okay, so Matthew 12, we'll read it here. I'll I'll kind of pause during it, and we'll look at some of the things that are said. So Matthew 12, verse 22. This is another scene shortly after Jesus had healed that first person. And it says, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. The man's life has changed so, so much so for the better. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. That's an interesting way to ask, to answer the thoughts and, and these questions. 
Then Jesus goes on. He says, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, which is another name for Satan, by whom do your people drive them out? Because he says, even your, um, your Pharisees and your people that are exorcists, they also drive out demons too. He says, so, so then they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, pause right there. First things first, okay, there's two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is a king with a kingdom, and Satan right now is allowed a certain amount of authority and um, a certain amount of influence in this world for the time being. Okay, that's it. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only, uh, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Right? So the kingdom of darkness, this is one thing that's important that we want to get established right at the beginning. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are not equal in power, but they are opposing, right? Sometimes we like to think of good and evil as like these equivalent things. No, God is good, and he's allowing Satan in there. So they're opposing, but they're not equivalent, okay? Jesus says in those little verses, he says that even Satan's kingdom needs unity for his wicked plans to succeed. Isn't that funny? Like even an evil kingdom, they have to be unified, to succeed, let alone a godly kingdom. So Jesus says, he says, by the spirit of God that he drives out demons, okay? Okay, but we continue on. If you can go back, actually, just to verse 29, says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And Jesus finally says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so Jesus uses an analogy right there, and he says, Satan is the strong man, and Jesus actually, when he enters the world, he ties up the strong man. He enters the world, which is Satan's house, right, the place where Satan has some authority over for the time being. He enters the world, and he ties up the strong man. He ties up Satan, and what Jesus is doing is he's plundering Satan's house. He's actually plundering the kingdom of darkness just one life at a time. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Every single life. Jesus is taking the valuable things in the house, the people. He's taking and plundering it from the kingdom of darkness. So there's only two choices. You're either with Jesus or you're not. And whether this is like an active resistance or like some sort of passive disregard, it would mean you're still not with Jesus. Jesus makes that actually very clear. Two kingdoms that are there. You're either gathering people into the kingdom or you're scattering them and driving people away, which is the work of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Do you hear me on that? Opposing Jesus' work can be an active thing, but it can also be indifference because the kingdom gathers people. It doesn't scatter people away. That is true, what I said. Here's the challenge with what I just said. We start to see people as solely the problem. We start to think then, my tribe is on the side of good, and their tribe is on the side of evil. We start to put ourselves into these different categories very easy. The Pharisees are an example. They see Jesus doing something good, or they do. Instead of celebrating that, they make an issue with it over just something religious, over the Sabbath, which keep the Sabbath holy and consecrated. We all believe that, so did Jesus. 
but to do good on the Sabbath is a good thing. But the Pharisees divide over that issue. So we do this a lot in the political realm, right? We like to think that one political party is under the kingdom of God, whatever that party is for you, and then the other ones could be under the kingdom of Satan. Do you think the banner of the kingdom of God is red or blue or orange or green or purple? Do you think it is? Do you think your particular party has kind of the kingdom of God spoken over it? Here's the truth of it. Every political party, every single political party is being influenced by both kingdoms. You hear me? The kingdom of God is calling out and reaching to every single person that identifies as one of those political parties. And the kingdom of Satan is trying to undermine that work actively in each party. Let's look at a couple other words. I don't know if I'll lose you guys on this one, but we'll see. The kingdom of God is calling out to people of every ethnic group, every background. I think many of us can accept that. But the kingdom of God is actually calling out to every religious group. What do you think of that? Can the spirit of God work in another religion? Sure, hope so. I, I sure hope so, but I believe so. I don't think the spirit of God is just working in people who would say they're an atheist or they're an agnostic. I would think someone who's very pious and is searching for God, searching maybe for other small g gods, maybe multiple gods, but they're seeking understanding. I think the spirit of God is calling out to that person. And I think the Satan in his kingdom is trying to keep them blinded so that they miss Jesus, right? The spirit of God is working in every capacity of the world. There's no parts where the spirit of God is off, off limits to. I think we have to think about this. Jesus, he doesn't fit into our nice little tribes, right? He's not liberal. He's not conservative. He's not new Democrat. He's not woke. He's not based, right? He's not a feminist, nor is he part of the manosphere, right? He's not kind of like with the city or with the village as, you know, as picking one of the other. Jesus is with the people, is he not? Jesus is with the people. Jesus sees the people and he has compassion on them. Just earlier in Matthew, a few chapters in Matthew 9, it said that he saw the crowds and he's moved with compassion for each person because it says that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, He sees that you're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on you where you are. Then he says, he teaches his disciples, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, so pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers into the field. Friends, the need is great, right? If you want to see a less polarized world, pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? This tribal mindset that we have, it just minimizes where people are at. And it really causes disunion homes, communities, and nations. So Jesus is not like us, but we can become more like him. Okay? Let's look at this. So as I say that, and, um, oh, just bear with me one second here. 
when I say that and we look at it in Ephesians, it does show in Ephesians that we wrestle against spiritual powers, right? I think that is there on the screen. We wrestle against spiritual powers in Ephesians. Okay, so it's not just people. But here we are, here we are. I think you can read that and you can say, you know, we can see that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. So when I say that to you, some of you are thinking, okay, Pastor Gary, so that's, that's good, I realize. Some people are victims of the kingdom. Um, some people are going through these rough times. Are you telling me that's not their fault at all? Someone's probably thinking that right now. Are you telling me that it's just not their fault? We're just solely victims of sin and Satan. Well, we are victims of sin and Satan. But we also perpetuate sin as well, right? And we're going to show you this here. There's a proverb that teaches on, the Proverbs generally just teach on wise living. And there's one in Proverbs 6. And at first it starts about adultery and laziness and other things that can bring harm to your life. But in the middle, the writer has this attention-grabbing line in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. When I come across that, I was like, oh, okay, I want to know what that is. The writer says, haughty eyes, like this proud look on your face, a lying tongue, right? You see the personification here of the the attributes of, of, of a person. Proud eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil. And he says, a false witness who pours out lies, a false witness who pours out lies, that's slander. According to the writer of Proverbs here, God really doesn't like that. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Some of you are saying, see, that's a proof text. It is their fault. If someone is like that, I have a right to be angry and to maybe treat them as such. Can we, can we just have like a little bit of nuance here? Everything in the world makes it seem it has to be one or the other. Can a person be influenced by the kingdom, be under some spiritual powers that are oppressive, and still also be responsible for their actions? I think they can. We're living in this world where it's just messy. It's not so smooth. It's not so easy, right? So the point is, is yes, people can do wicked things. But we could do wicked things. We can actually read this and say, this is how people are, instead of looking at where we might be ourselves. And culture today, you just want to be, culture really wants to make you think you're just one thing, that you can't be like both strong and kind. Or, you know, if you have one costly mistake in your life, it negates every single good thing that you've done. Uh, that's not true. That's not true, right? The gospel says it's not true. Right? It, it's not, um, as, as we say, right? it's not good people who go to heaven. It's forgiven people who go to heaven. Right? But even Jesus himself, he goes against the culture in his very nature. Jesus, he's a paradox that can help in our polarized world. Look at this. Look at the paradox of Jesus here. I, guess I, heard, a, I heard a young person say, what's a paradox? Thank you, sweet daughter. That was so good. That's a great question. I'm going to tell you what a paradox is. And a paradox is an apparent contradiction right? Like being hard and soft. It's an apparent contradiction. Plexiglass is hard because it won't break, but it's actually soft where it has some bounce to it. Such a good question. Thank you. I love that. So Jesus is a paradox in himself. 
Look at this. He's fully God and he's fully man. One person, two natures. That's a big conversation. I'm not going to go into all of that right now. Pastor Dave next week is going to teach on the divinity of Jesus Christ. But Jesus, he's pro-mercy and he's pro-justice. Right? He's pro-life in the fullest sense. He's pro-grace. Jesus is both the strongest and the meekest man who ever walked the earth. Think about that. Immense strength, immense humility and meekness. This one, Jesus is the savior of the world and he's the judge of the world. You hear me on this one? He's the savior of the world and he's the judge of the world. Jesus is both lion and lamb, right? They look like they're a contrast, lion and lamb. Jonathan Edwards, he, he, I'm going to quote this. He says, as a theologian, he's a theologian. He said of Jesus' lion-like qualities, he said he's ferocious. As a lion, he's ferocious, he's powerful, he's regal, and he's appropriately terrifying. That's Jesus. But as the lamb, he's the opposite. He's gentle, and he's vulnerable, and he's in danger as prey. That's Jesus. Jesus is not like us, but we can be more like him. We can be more than one thing. So how about this? You can have passionate convictions that you live your life by and you hold near and dear, so much so that when you break them, it pains you. When you see other people break them, it pains you. And you can have compassion for the person who disagrees with those convictions. Can you have convictions and compassion at the same time? Yes, much easier said than done, but you can do both. You can have compassion on what that person is going through. You can have compassion realizing that they've had a different experience than you and they see it differently. You know the whole agree to disagree thing? It doesn't really work. The agree to disagree thing doesn't really work because you both kind of stay in your own camp, right? But if you actually look at that person and say, hmm, they have felt something differently in life than I have, you start to go there in the compassionate realm. This one, you can ask God for vindication and justice, and you can give grace to people at the same time. We're going to talk about how you can do these things a little bit just as we close in the next little bit. You can have vindication and justice and give people grace. You can ask God for those two things, God of justice Grant me justice today, please. And you can treat the person who offended you with grace. Could you say it's hard? You're so right. I want you to come up here and teach with me because you're asking, you're such great questions, making great comments. It is very hard to do that, right? But Jesus is showing that you can be more than one thing, that we can actually do this if we become more like him because Jesus did those things. It is hard. Okay, so what do we do now? Now, we're going to promote peace. Promote peace. You guys have heard this before. But promoting peace is extremely difficult for all the reasons we've already mentioned, right? The two kingdoms colliding against each other. Um, The fact that, you know, we feel like if I feel strongly, I shouldn't be so soft on someone who's really offended me, right? All the reasons we mentioned It's very difficult to promote peace. But I'll give you another reason why it's difficult to promote peace. 
Okay, there's a study in 2020 by researchers. They're from UC Berkeley, Stanford, and John Hopkins University. And it concluded this. It included that hot-button words trigger conservatives and liberals differently. Listen to this. The use of words related to risk, threat, emotions, or morality led to a greater polarization. Risk, threat, your emotions, or your sense of morality, it led to a greater polarization. They had these people gather, and they all said, um, they all identified as either liberals or conservatives and on different parts of the spectrum, right? Some staunchly liberal, some staunchly conservative. And they said that's where they fall in line. Then they told them a story about a political issue, and they watched the, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. It's somewhere near the front of your brain here. And they watched it, and this is the part of your brain that, among other things, it interprets narrative, it interprets story, okay? So they tell them this political story. They're telling them the same thing. What they said is when they added words that implied morality, emotionality, risk, or threat, that part of their brain started to light up, started to just light up. I'm hearing these things, it's lighting up. And, and believe this, as they told the story longer and longer and longer, each person became more and more conservative and more and more liberal. Each person who was in that camp went into their camps even further entrenched in their belief system. And they were hearing the same thing. As they added those words, whatever the person believed going into the issue, it just became reinforced the longer they heard the story. It's called neural polarization. Your brain starts to polarize. So I'm going to test something here. I'm going to test something here. Ready? I'm going to say some words. So when I say these words, trans rights, LGBTQ+, alt-right, immigration, border security, homophobic, racist, sexist, me too, Gen Z, boomer, green belt, Some of you are so quiet before, I can see your brain, just the synapses firing in your brain, like, no, what is Pastor Gary doing to me right now? I didn't even talk about the issue. I literally just said words related to a political issue. And I could see some of you like, Do you not think that your favorite political pundit on YouTube knows this? Do you not think the politician that you hate knows this? Do you not think the politician that you love knows this? Do you not think that on some level, even we know, that when we're having a disagreement with the person in front of us, we can actually say something that we know would really trigger them and bother them? And what happens is it's showing that the longer we speak, the further we get apart. It just reinforces what I already knew about them and what I already believe about myself. So, friends, peacemaking is very, very tough. Okay, we're going to close in the next five, six minutes, five minutes or so. It's very tough. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, for they will be called children of God. Okay, 
How do we do this? Okay, one of the things to be a peacemaker, you have to start thinking of yourself a little bit less. One of the reasons why our world is so polarized is because we're constantly looking at issues of how does this affect me? Is this fair to me? What can I do to get out of this situation? What am I going to get out of this? Once we start thinking this way, we've actually entered into warfare. You know that? The cause of some of your disunity is because we are by nature now self-interested and often self-centered. Once you start thinking that way, you are diving into warfare. Arguments with your spouse, arguments with your neighbor, globally arguments. Almost everyone thinks like this constantly, and then we wonder why we're having trouble and why we're fighting so much. Peacemakers have to think of themselves less, and they have to look at God more and then look at others. So peacemakers, ultimately, they have to desire peace between peoples and groups and nations. But first and foremost, they should desire bringing God glory and bringing peace between people and God. That should be your chief concern, is bringing the Lord glory. That's how Jesus was. He suffered for the glory of God. Are you willing to suffer to promote peace? And ask again, you don't have to have an answer, but just think about it. Are you willing to suffer to make your world a little more peaceful? Could you give up some pride and dignity for more peace? I've been asking myself this all week. Jesus did do this. All right. A few steps on becoming a better peacemaker. Stop talking. Or talk less, even. Say less. All right? Train yourself not to respond. Right? Learn. When you're in a situation and you're having an issue with someone in front of you, train yourself to not respond. Learn not to speak. Right? James, the brother of Jesus, he says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So you hear something. You're talking with somebody. And they say something, and you are tempted to reply. Don't. Someone right now really wants to say amen. But, but don't, right? You want to. I can see it. People are like, he said, he said, you hear something and don't reply. I'd be like, biting their lip, biting their lip. Just train yourself to not reply sometimes. Also, don't repeat things that are going to harm someone, right? Don't continue gossip. If someone's having an issue and you're friends, you're in the middle ground, you can actually say to the people or the persons, you can say to them, hey, I think you guys got to hash it out. You got to talk to each other. But you don't necessarily have to tell person A every single thing that person B told you. You can say, hey, I'll, I'll be there with you guys. I'll help you through it. But you guys need to talk. People always want to say something from themselves, right? They want to say their truth, whatever the case may be, but does it promote peace? On a national, international level, I think there's just entirely too much talking. Whether it's city council or it's the House of Commons, I think there's just too much talking. You've got to roll up your sleeves sometimes and just start working together for unification, Nations are becoming more and more destabilized with tweets. Do they call it tweets now? That's X, is that what they still call it? 
tweets. Nations become more and more destabilized with like dealing over a political issue because they just want to yell and threaten to each other. We got to stop the political posturing, both on a global level and a personal level. Okay, number two, start thinking. Start thinking less of yourself and more about others. So it's not enough to stop talking. It's not only once we do that. We need to pause and start thinking. When you're in a situation that often leads to warfare, an argument, personal or global, start thinking about this. Start saying, how does my response impact the person in front of me? But how does it go further than that? If I respond this way, how does it affect my, my household? How does it affect the organization I'm part of? How does it affect my church? How does it affect people who look like me? How does it affect people who live where I live? You start thinking of those things and your response might change. And because of that thing, you might actually have nothing to say. It's important to think of how the thing that you want to say could affect so many people. Play it forward, Pastor Dave always says, play it forward. Okay. Next one, last one. Once you do that, once you play it forward, you stop talking, you, you play it forward and start thinking, you actually begin to promote peace. Third one, do good. Okay, so stop talking, start thinking. That's just the initial steps. Jesus goes further. He says, do good. Do the next right thing. Jesus in Luke 6 says this. But to you who are listening, if you are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless the ones that curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. There's your enemy. He's been saying horrible things about you. And Jesus says to love him. Do good to him. Paul said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. You're looking at this person, they've been running you down, they've been slandering you, they've been defaming your character, and then Paul and Jesus say, recognize that there's something wrong with them, recognize that they're actually missing something, and then meet that need. Yowza. You, you, in that situation, you might need to apologize first for what you did. Maybe it is 90% their fault. I'll grant you that. But you might actually have to go first and apologize for how you contributed to the disharmony between them. Treat him kindly. Bless him. Pray for him. Bless her. Pray for her. Okay, peacemaking, it comes at a cost. You might have to give up some dignity, some of your pride, but it comes with a great reward. Again, what does it say? It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You get to be a child of God to be a peacemaker. That's the promise. We're like little versions of our heavenly father when we promote peace. We're like little versions of Jesus when we suffer to promote peace. I've had opportunity to do this this week. And it's not easy. But yet I'm confronted with a text that says very clearly that that's what I'm called to do. In Hebrews 13, the writer concludes with a benediction, a good word. Pastor is going to give a benediction in the next couple minutes. A good word spoken over the reader, and he calls God the Father, the God of peace. The children of the God of peace are the peacemakers. What are you willing to do tomorrow at work 
tomorrow at school, this evening later at home to promote peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of peace, help us to be more like Jesus, willing to humble ourselves and even suffer for peace on earth or just peace at home or peace in our relationships. We pray, Lord, for more of your shalom, your presence in our communities. God, help us to reflect and reproduce the Prince of Peace. Heal our land, Lord. Heal the divide of every tribe. Heal the divide. In your word, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Lord, we ask that you forgive our selfish attitudes that continue warfare in our relationships. We ask that you forgive any way we've contributed to a less peaceful school, work, church, home, nation, world. Forgive us, we pray, and heal our land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.